0: At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and hex stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Sarah Trodosh. And I'm Corinne Iozio. Welcome, both of you. It has been a while since we we had the pleasure of uh, your company Corinne, now the editor-in-chief of Popular Science, not still sounds, the last time you were on here.
1: It still sounds weird to say it out loud. you not
0: going to lie. It's cool, though. And I like it. <laughs> we like it, too. Yes. And uh, Sarah, back stateside after a while, though still thought with us because none of us are together at all, but yeah, closer than before.
2: It has been so long, I've almost forgotten what you all look like. Oh, so sad.
1: You know, I miss my friends in three dimensions. I feel like I've seen you all in two dimensions quite a bit and it's just all oh, it's not no, the
2: same. I don't like
0: it when all my all the people are flat. <laughs>
2: <laughs> just living in a two-dimensional world here.
0: <laughs> well, weirdos, we have really enjoyed having our our fortnightly check-ins with with all of you throughout this crisis and and our time spent sheltering at home. Uh, However, we have decided that this is going to be our last Weirdest Thing episode for a little while. We're going to take a short break before we gear up for season four. We promise we will make it short. We'll be back sometime this summer. We're talking about maybe doing another live stream show, which went over really well back in Gosh, what was it? Was that March? Time has no meaning anymore. Uh, we also hope to put out a couple of bonus episodes, so please do send us any weird facts you want to share, or questions or comments you have about the show. Nice ones, please. You can send them via Anchor voice message, which you can access from the Anchor app or from the Anchor website. You can search for the Popular Science dashboard and send us a voice message. There. And of course, we will still be present on Twitter at weirdest underscore thing on our Facebook group, which you can find by searching weirdest thing on Facebook uh, and on Instagram. And we will definitely still be chatting, being weird, hanging out with you and coming up with cool new ways uh, for weirdest thing to continue to be an awesome community during this uh, weird in a bad way time. So All of that being said, we are going to get into this final episode of season three. We're just saying it's been around for two years. Wow, that's amazing. Thanks for sticking with us. Let's make this a good one, and then we'll be back soon. (laughs) So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, Googling cute mask designs, etc., and decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then, once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Corinne, what's your tease?
1: So I want to explain to you all why there are random cow bones in Major League Baseball clubhouses. Cow bones,
0: you say? Oh, bones yeah. Bones of a cow. <laughs> Femurs and stuff. Specifically cows, yeah. huh? <laughs> well, oh, it's bo- not okay. just bones cows, of a bovine but nature. often cows. <laughs> okay. All right, wow. I think I'm. I'm more upset that they're only sometimes cows. It's an assortment of bones, <laughs> but you'll you'll explain that. So it's a um, beggars and I'll, choosers
1: thing. We'll get into it.
0: <laughs> I'll withhold judgment for now. Sarah, what's your tease?
2: My fact today is about how a wallpaper cleaner from the 1930s became one of the most popular American toys ever invented.
0: Ooh, I know what this is. God, I'm excited. I think I'm. I, I th-
1: Yeah, it's true. But I think
0: I have a guess, but I'm just going to keep it to myself for now. (laughs) All right. Um, You're a better person than I am, Corinne. My (laughs) tease is that I'm going to talk about a lot of bizarre sports, but primarily I would like to discuss cheese rolling.
2: Cheese rolling is my favorite thing. I learned about (laughs) cheese rolling in AP chemistry in high school my senior year. It was incredible. It's one of my favorite things ever.
0: I'm thrilled to hear what the AP Chemistry tie in was. So we'll definitely have to circle back to that. Um, circle back like the cheese. Oh, no. Oh, uh, delicious no. cheese. Uh, <laughs> oh, no. So, but uh, our listeners may have noticed that all of our facts are about games and toys and having fun playing, if you will. And there's a reason for that. Our latest issue of Popular Science Magazine is all about play. Corinne, would you like to talk a little bit about this fantastic issue? Absolutely. So
1: yesterday, we launched on PopSci.com and just widely across the internet. You can find it on all of our social channels, the summer issue, which is cover to cover about play. It's super fun. And what we're really excited about about this issue is that we're making it available digitally digitally only to anybody who wants to read it while we all stay safe at home we're just bringing everybody all the fun we have to give at a time where we all need it like a lot not a little bit I know it feels all serious and grim out there but you gotta laugh you have to enjoy yourself so that's what we're here to hopefully do for all of you and this episode is part of that
0: Absolutely. Yeah. And weirdest thing, you know, we have been all about finding those moments of joy and things that are weird in a good way throughout this. So we thought it was absolutely appropriate to celebrate this wonderful, fun-packed play issue. So, not all of our facts are from the issue, but uh, as we have all been very immersed in all sorts of sports and play and toys. It's no surprise that we picked up some random factoids along the way. And uh, if you like these, you will definitely enjoy the issue. So check it out. We'll have info in the show notes and, of course, on our associated post on popside.com weird. So what should we start with? God, I mean, I want to start with the cheese rolling if I'm being completely honest. <laughs> I know. I kind okay. of- I feel like I need. we need to do that. It has to happen. Okay. So I want to start just because in the process of looking more into cheese rolling, I found so many bizarre sports. So I wanted to start with a little game, if you guys are up for that. Yes. Please. Uh, so we have played two facts and a lie on the show before where I say three supposed facts, one of which is not a fact, and you have to guess which is the lie. And so I've done that with sports. So I've come up with a lot of dumb fake sports. And I'm so immersed in the world of bizarre sports that I don't really have a good sense of whether I kept mine realistic or not. I've lost all sense of what's reasonable because I have spent all morning reading about really, really strange things that people do for fun. So this is gonna be what it is, and I will read it and you will have fun. Okay. So <laughs> we will have fun. Yes. Um, it is demanded okay. of us. Let's do it. We have we have several rounds of two sports in the line. Okay. Which of these sports is not a sport? Also, I should say the sports I made up, I did Google to make sure they weren't weren't real, but like I in no way guarantee that no one has ever done this thing I made up for fun. Okay. <laughs> so Two sports in a lie. Underwater wrestling, where competitors tussle in a swimming pool while wearing fins and masks. Underwater video game championships, where competitors aim to race through game levels before they have to come up for air. Or underwater ice hockey, where you go under the surface of a frozen lake and play hockey, but upside down, with the puck sliding along the bottom while you hold your breath and try not to die.
2: All of those sound fake.
0: There's no way two of
2: those
1: are real. I think, wait, one of these is fake or two are fake? Yes, one is fake. One is fake. fake. I think the hockey is fake because I don't think the physics of that
0: quite work. Well, Corinne, in fact, the ice hockey is real. No. Can I guess? Can I guess? (laughs) Yes.
2: Okay. I think it's the wrestling.
0: Wrestling is also real. Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God. The video (laughs) people.
2: It's the video games? I guess electronics. That does make sense now that I think about it.
0: But it does seem like the least crazy of those three, right? Okay, we're off to a great start. But yeah, underwater wrestling, um, I think it originally came out of like USSR military training because you have to learn how to like deal with combatants or just like flailing people you're trying to rescue in the water, but then they turned it into a game. And now it is a competition that people do for fun. And underwater ice hockey is exactly what it sounds like. Not to be confused with underwater hockey, which is much safer and which you play on the floor of the pool with a heavy puck. I assume the puck for underwater ice hockey is quite light. I also assume it's not a very widespread game because, wow, it's insane. (laughs) All right. And now we have another round: bog snorkeling, where you put on fins and kick your way through a water-filled trench in a peat bog; toe wrestling, which is exactly what it sounds like; or competitive squash lifting, where you have to not only grow a giant vegetable yourself, but then you have to deadlift it.
2: That one's definitely real. I can feel it. <laughs> um, says the says the power lifter. Well, I don't know. I could. De- I would do that. I would. I would compete. If it's not real, I would compete in it. <laughs> Even so. <laughs> um, wow. This is so hard.
0: I'm really glad it's hard because, like I said, I lost all sense of what was a believable sport. Okay. I'm going to say toe wrestling's a lie. So, actually, the lie is competitive squash lifting, though no! I agree. It's a great idea. And I hope someone steals it from me. Or, Sarah, maybe you and I should just get that started.
2: We should. That is like, that feels like a peak like state fair (laughs) event you know i've grown this 200 pound squash and now i will i will deadlift it i would love that
0: (laughs) but yeah unfortunately toe wrestling is real it became a thing in the 70s and so is bog snorkeling great fun okay which of these is a lie baby herding where dogs are trained to wrangle small (laughs) children like they're sheep (laughs) Wife carrying, where male competitors race through an obstacle course with a female teammate holding onto their back, or kick volleyball, which is just like volleyball, but you can use everything but your hands and arms to keep the ball off the ground.
2: I'm going with baby herding.
0: You are correct. Baby herding oh, is God. Uh, not a sport. It's just a cute thing people do on YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh Destined no. to
1: become a sport, no doubt.
0: <laughs> but yeah as problematic as white carrying is as a sport including its its origins which probably have to do with like pillaging it is like it's hard for the female competitor too you gotta hold on as your host like trudges through mud and stuff so how are they um, carried like over the back it's usually like a fireman's carry um uh, so they kind, kind the of shoulders okay Well, I think actually traditionally it was like a fireman's carry, and now the most successful competitors are like the female competitor kind of like knapsacks it. They're like holding on very tight, which is why I say that the so-called wives who do not have to be legally married to their partners should get more credit in the wife carrying. It looks pretty difficult to stay holding on to that sweaty man while he climbs things. Um, Okay, what is the lie? Rabbit show jumping, which is like horse jumping but with rabbits on leashes— the Great Jumpathon, which is a marathon length race conducted back and forth inside of one of those giant trampoline gyms, or Cycle Ball, which is like soccer but played on bicycles. None of these can be real.
1: <laughs> this is just. <laughs> I know. It's, um, is Cycle Ball fake?
0: I ho- I was going to say Cycle Ball. No, too. Cycle Ball is real.
2: Oh my God. Man, yeah. I am not
0: doing well at this game. <laughs> uh, the Great Jumpathon is a thing I made up. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Rabbit again, show that jumping feels so real. Rabbit show jumping is Swedish. So, wow! Not what I was thinking. So, so big ups to our parent <laughs> company and the rabbit jumping Swedes. <laughs> I'm going to start Bonheur's official rabbit jumping team. I will bring us much glory. Uh, okay, what of these is fake? The man versus horse marathon, which is a 22 mile race where man is pitted against horse. Shin Kicking, a 17th century English martial art where contestants attempt to knock each other to the ground with nothing but kicks to the shin, or The Bricklayer's Bane, where competitors pick up scattered bricks as they race a 5k, adding them to their packs as they run, and get points both for the speed they race and the height of the stack they can make at the end. Oh my god. The brick one, maybe? (laughs) Yeah, I don't want to speak. I first. made that up. Oh, <laughs> okay, good. Okay, shin kicking is real. Yeah, shin I'm sure kicking you could felt hear my so real. I'm sure you could hear my air quotes around English martial art, but yes. that is how it is described online. As okay, soon as last- you said
2: 17th century English martial art, I was like, for sure,
0: Englishmen in the 17th century invented that martial Just art, kick in the shins. Okay, here's the last one, and then we will um, actually talk about cheese rolling. I promise. Mutton busting, which is like bull riding at a rodeo, but instead of a bull, it's a sheep and the competitors are all tiny children. Extreme ironing, which is where people take ironing boards to the most remote and dangerous places they can think of, and then they stop and they iron something. Or chess boxing, which is where competitors alternate between rounds of chess and boxing.
1: Okay, I know that chess boxing is real because I went down that rabbit hole when I was researching for a Weirdest Thing episode two years ago. <laughs> wow. So I'm going to take that one out. Um, it's a coin toss, Sarah. What do you think?
2: Oh, my
1: God. I'm going to go
2: with the ironing. So this one was a trap. They are all real. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> ironing? How are you supposed to iron, like, in the middle of a forest? Do you carry, like, People a generator? People
0: like... I mean, I guess they bring, like, battery-powered irons. I don't know. Or they bring a Jenny with them. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. But as people, like, going up, they'll, like, climb a mountain and then, like, iron. They'll iron while skydiving. It's the cheekiest sport on this list of sports. It's the one that takes itself the least seriously, I have to say. I went on one date once with a guy who had been a childhood mutton busting star and they take that very seriously.
2: Yeah, um, that that felt that does feel like a, a true a true state
0: fair <laughs> event of some yes. kind. Well, thank you for playing. Uh, And now we can talk about cheese rolling, which is my favorite bizarre sport and which I've been familiar with for a long time because of Neopets, the uh, wonderful uh, website that so many millennials spent their childhoods on. I forgot Um, about
2: cheese rolling in Neopets.
0: (laughs) Right. You can buy a wheel of cheese from an array of options and you hope to have it roll down a hill unimpeded in 60 seconds or less you don't get to watch the cheese the game just tells you whether the cheese made it down or not and you can like every few meters it'll allow you to give a command like dive right or hold cheese steady so it (laughs) Oh it's not gosh. the most dynamic game. You didn't even win neo points. You just won the cheese you already bought and the resale value on the cheese sucked, so it was not a great game, but I found it strangely compelling. You know and- that thing where
1: <laughs> like mathematically you're not that much older than people, but there is all of a sudden a very <laughs> There's a clear- massive divide divide and I have no idea what
0: anything you just said is. Um, Well, Neopets was just a game that was kind of like Animal Crossing before Animal Crossing. Okay. You just like, you had these virtual pets in a fantasy world and it it was a very capitalist society, Neopets. It was all about making Neopoints but it was before the days where kids had to like make their parents like buy them credits for a game. It was it was a very money-driven system, but it was all fake money. So, I got to watch with horror as the online game ecosystem switched over to kids having to like steal their parents' credit cards for things. <laughs> I just earned neo points by merit and by spinning the fairy wheel. So, Please, (laughs) Okay. Thank you for that. I just needed a little minute (laughs) to
1: understand what was happening.
0: Uh, So, but yeah, I found this really boring game strangely compelling. And the real sport is quite different, but no less perplexing. Uh, The Cooper's Hill Cheese Rolling and Wake is held every spring on Cooper's Hill in England. And it sounds really simple. You roll a wheel of cheese down a hill and try to catch it. But it's so much more interesting than that. For starters, the nine-pound cheese wheel can hit speeds of 70 miles per hour. And then there's the fact that the 650 or so foot hill is quite steep and very craggly and often muddy. So it's incredibly dangerous to chase a nine-pound wheel of cheese going at 70 miles per hour. Where did this come from? Why does it happen? We don't know. We know it was already an old tradition by 1826, which is when it enters the written record in a message written to the town crier, I guess, to announce your old cheese wheel roll. And it definitely, like, alluded to it being a storied tradition by then. So we know it's quite old. I found a bunch of articles saying it may have started as a way of maintaining grazing rights for the commons, but no one ever explains how or why cheese rolling is involved in grazing rights. Other theories hold that it's the evolution of some pagan ritual, but that version of the story is equally vague, but also kind of seems more plausible to me. So (laughs) the sport is incredibly dangerous. I really can't stress that enough. It is assumed that several people will leave for the hospital from this event. In 2008, there was an article in the Sydney Herald. You might wonder why. It's because competitors come from all over the world, and Australia is no exception. And this article described the sport as, quote, 20 young men chasing cheese off a cliff and tumbling 200 yards to the bottom, where they are scraped up by paramedics and packed off to hospital. The article writer actually competed himself, and he said that looking down the hill was like looking down a black diamond ski slope with no snow. Uh, <laughs> And so they, they line the course with giant hay bales to keep cheese from clobbering spectators because would be like getting hit in the face with a bowling ball. And they also like the local rugby team will volunteer to stand at the bottom of the hill and like catch people as as they hit the finish line. According to one local paper I found, the highest injury toll in recent years occurred in 1997 when 33 competitors were treated for everything from splinters to broken bones And in 2005, races were delayed as ambulances delivered victims to the local hospital before returning to wait for the next batch of casualties. (laughs) So because of all this, the event was officially canceled in 2010. Uh, Until then, it was held by, like, the county. But it's been held unofficially ever since because the people want their cheese rolling.
2: (laughs) You can't take cheese rolling away from the people.
0: You really can't. Though, even the cheese rollers did postpone the game this year in May due to the pandemic. So kudos to the cheese rollers, a wildly irresponsible bunch for being responsible about this one thing. (laughs) The first few unofficial races actually used fake foam cheeses to make it safer, which totally changed the gameplay because in theory, you're trying to chase the cheese. You're trying to catch it. But the winner... Usually, historically, it has always been the person who just crosses the finish line first because the cheese always beats people to the finish line. It's going at 70 miles per hour. So once you had this lighter foam cheese, it was like more bouncing back and forth down the hill. And the person who caught it actually wasn't even at the front of the race, he just happened to intercept the cheese. However, it now seems, based on videos of how the cheese rolls down, like real cheese is probably used again, but explicit discussion of said cheese is kind of vague online, which is understandable because the police keep telling the cheesemakers that they might be liable for injuries. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And that's everything I have to say about cheese rolling because there really isn't anything more to it than that. But I find it fascinating, and I think the history and variety of human sport is a fascinating subject. And we do get into that in the play issue. Uh, We do not talk about cheese rolling in the play issue. Tragically, I can't believe we didn't include it. (laughs) But Sarah, I am really curious about how it came up in your AP Chem class. Yes, I'm so intrigued by what the connection was there
2: yeah so actually now that I think about it it was our it was our junior year because at my high school if you took an AP class like most of them are for seniors and once your AP test was done they were basically just like if you're a senior like just stop coming like we don't care anymore just you're not going to do anything and so anyone who was like a junior in the AP classes had to stay but they would like the teachers would like make up some activity like a fun activity for you to do from the time of the test until the end of the school year so my AP chemistry teacher had us like get into groups and do these like like basically fun little projects that had to do tangentially with chemistry and so my groups was about the chemistry of cheese making as I recall we attempted to make ricotta cheese which went quite badly oh um, no that's
0: like the easiest cheese it
2: is the easiest cheese we still I think we tried to do it with like without a thermometer you oh, shouldn't do it yeah. without a thermometer it's very hard and I think in the process of trying to like find videos about cheese to serve as like b-roll for our presentation <laughs> we found cheese rolling and I just thought it was such an insane endeavor to look at this like like we, we I assume we'll post a video on popside.com because truly yeah. it's incredible to watch grown men and women i think but possibly only men are foolish enough to do it like (laughs) line up at the top of truly a cliff like it's so steep they can't even really stand on it and then they roll cheese down like no one is ever gonna beat the cheese (laughs) to the bottom so it's just it's insane from
0: start to finish and um and yet Yet there is always the hope that one might beat the cheese. Yeah. Also, I I have a note on the male versus female competitors thing. Uh, so for now, the races are mostly male, but there is uh, a ladies race. And at least according to that article... In the Sydney Herald and a couple other articles I read, the women's race, almost everyone competes by sliding down, like like scuttering down on their butts. Because it is like, That's you smart can way to pretty do it. much just slide down. It's a very steep hill. And it is pure machismo hubris that makes one think that the best way to win is just barreling down. People literally knock themselves unconscious. The guy who won in 2019 was like, this is so much better than last year when I knocked myself out. It's it's wild. Um, I mean, because when you're running I don't, downhill, I can't like, condone
1: it. <laughs> yeah. It's just how do you not go completely ass over elbow?
0: Yeah. I have a friend of a friend who does um, like downhill mountain foot races. So literally just running as fast as you can down a mountain <laughs> And I was like, how do you not fall and break your ankle? And the answer was, a lot of people do. So yeah, you know, why do we do anything?
2: <laughs> I mean, all, all sports are a little ridiculous in the end, right?
0: <laughs> Cheese rolling. Why do we do anything? <laughs> I mean, they're all That's fundamentally 20. made up. So yeah. That's true. The sports I made up for my quiz should exist. Not all of them should but the squash one definitely should. Yeah, so
2: for sure. I every will, sport I has will to be start trying somewhere. to start that sport. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with more fun facts. Okay, we're back, and uh, Corinne, why don't you tell us about some bones? Ah, bones. yes, yes, some bones.
1: So I'm going to start with something that I know is just going to completely blow everybody's minds, and it's with the notion that baseball players are some pretty superstitious dudes. Um,
0: <laughs> I recall Jess doing yeah. a whole segment about baseball superstitions.
1: Yes, and you know, we it touches things like curses, but it goes down to in-game rituals, before-game rituals, but also just stuff that they do with their equipment. And there's probably, obviously, no more hallowed piece of equipment in baseball than the bat that a player uses. And picking a bat is a pretty big deal. Some players, like there's one guy who played for the Kansas City Royals for a long time who only swung one bat reportedly his entire professional career. But some people just go completely bat crazy. There was a Seattle Mariner named Brett Boone who reportedly had something or somewhere around 200 bats in the clubhouse with him. So you pick your bat, you pick your 200 bats. But once players have their bat, they are to varying degrees meticulous about the care and maintenance and Breaking in of their bats, and there's a whole wide range of things that they do, which we will get into later. But in the history of the game, there is one bat maintenance tradition that really seems to have stuck around, and it is something called bone rubbing. uh yeah, I know, I know. We'll we'll just take a minute and let that sit in. We'll like get all the adolescent jokes out of our brains really
0: quickly. (laughs) Okay, it's really important for your baseball bat maintenance. Yes, okay. You do lots so. of bone rubbing. Okay. <laughs> okay. Whatever so, you say. What
1: this means is that players and sometimes equipment managers will take a big old bone, very often a cow femur, sometimes a pork hock or something like that, and they will rub it along the barrel of the bat. Now, players still do this There's an article in the Washington Post about a cow femur that was in the Washington Nationals clubhouse. Babe Ruth did it. Mickey Mantle did it. There's actually a somewhat famous photo of Joe DiMaggio pressing his Louisville slugger against what appears to be a cow femur. And yes, of course, there isn't always a good reason why an athlete will do something, where their rituals come from, but there is... A little bit of a reason behind why someone would do this and the idea is that rubbing the exterior of the bat compresses the outermost cells of the wood and it helps flatten out and smooth the surface so if you've boned a bat thoroughly and correctly it actually almost looks like it has a semi-gloss finish on it
0: oh interesting
1: so I couldn't really figure out when anybody started doing this or why, but it seems to have something to do with the fact that early on, baseball bats were made almost exclusively out of ash, which isn't the hardest wood in the world. It's is—it's hard. It's not like you're swinging balsa wood or something like that, but the surface of it, when you take it off the lathe, you end up with all of these little micro cuts and fissures and things like that and they basically make the surface of the bat less hard but also more vulnerable to breakage over time so by boning the bat and smoothing out those outer layers the notion is is that you're going to have a harder hitting surface which is great for that wonderful pop sound but also those big big home run hits and you're also just going to hopefully increase the longevity of the bat now (laughs) Of course. I went to go see if there was science behind any of this. <laughs> <laughs> science. Oh. Science. <laughs> science, you say. Science in the baseball. Code who thunk. So we reached out, and when I say we, I actually mean our former intern, Molly Glick, at my urging when we first discovered this practice, reached out to a dude named Sam Lloyd, who runs the sports science lab at Washington State University. And they test all kinds of sports equipment there, but it's where baseball bats and balls and all manner of equipment go to get rated. They have all of this really cool advanced physics looking into how all these things work and if they're safe and if they meet the standards of the sport. So Professor Lloyd says, the effects are small and complex. Wood is porous, so increasing the density would also increase strength. By this argument, boning would make the bat stronger. Boning that increases surface hardness might delay flaking a little. Boning that increases surface damage might encourage flaking. So, what's important to realize here is that you can bone a bat incorrectly and make problems worse.
0: <laughs> so, you wow. gotta be really careful. You always wanna bone carefully. Yeah. Always
1: bone carefully. It's just sound life advice, for sure. Because uh, if you end up making these cracks worse, then moisture gets in, and moisture plus wood equals bigger cracks and all kinds of other bad things. Now, when has a lack of certainty ever stopped a baseball player from doing anything, let alone baseball bat manufacturers from capitalizing on the notions that people have and the lore surrounding their bats? So, decades ago, Louisville Slugger marketed baseball bats that were stamped bone-rubbed, but eventually they changed the moniker to powerized. And big bat manufacturers today, including a Louisiana company named Marucci that we talk about in the play issue, still can have actually built boning into their production lines and used it as a tool to help sell the bats. And a lot of them are still doing it manually. But again, you have to be careful when you're doing things like this manually because you can screw it up. So now, naturally, people try to automate it. Rawlings owns a patent for a bat bone rubbing robot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and their contraption uses computerized controls to carefully rotate the bat and apply even pressure from the bone across the bat's surface a few years ago Louisville Slugger launched a new line called the MLB Prime whose finishing stages harken back to bone rubbing but aren't exactly bone rubbing they basically have created a really intense polisher that applies something around 500 pounds of pressure to compress the grain and flatten the hitting surface this is a good point for me to point out that it doesn't actually have to be a bone I was just gonna say are they for real still using like a a legit bone because that just seems like not the optimal tool so it doesn't have to be a bone. It just needs to be something that's harder than the bat itself. So if mm-hmm. a bone's not available, people use the edge of a sink or a toilet. People have been seen using... Coke.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you gotta toilet your bat.
1: <laughs> I mean, if I'm not gonna bone my bat, I'm gonna use it on the crapper. Um, <laughs> uh, it really just... It can even actually be a wood... That's harder than the wood of the bat. All that matters is that it's Mm. harder than the surface you're trying to compress. But here's the really crazy part that this is a thing that's still happening is that players don't even use predominantly ash bats anymore. They've pretty much all switched over to maple, which is a much harder wood to begin with. So if you're concerned about increasing the surface hardness and we're already using a harder wood, then does it really still even matter. Of course, again, when has that stopped anyone? Baseball lore dies super hard. And I mean, we could go down a whole other rabbit hole talking about the differences between Maple Bats and Ash Bats and how everybody switching to Maple Bats is really Barry Bonds' fault because he was using a maple bat when he broke the home run record. He was also using steroids, but we don't really need to talk about that right now. But it was definitely the maple <laughs> bat, correct? sure. It was for sure. 100%. 100%. So, but of course, he started this trend and everybody switched to maple. And because of the grain structure of maple, those bats break differently than ash bats, but in a very dangerous shrapnel, like eye-gouging kind of way. So Major League Baseball commissioned a study And they basically said, we used to think that we had to hit the edge grain of a bat, which is where the grains of a wood look like tiny little layers. But it turns out with a maple bat, you want to hit it on the face grain, which is the oval part. So now that they've basically reoriented the way people are holding maple bats, they're a lot less dangerous. And it turns out it's easier to get maple because there was a a pest called the emerald ash borer that really decimated the ash trees, which people pretty much started using just because they basically grew like weeds and they were everywhere but anyway that's the maple bat digression but again you're never going to stop players from doing what they do so I just wanted to close with a quick sampling of other stuff that players have been known to do to their bats in order to increase their performance all of these things are totally legal by the way The rules of Major League Baseball only stipulate that a bat has to be solid wood and of a certain length and that the pine tar, which is the stuff that you or anything that you put on the grip, can't extend past a certain point. But anything you want to do to the surface of it that doesn't leave any sort of really icky residue or anything like that is totally legit. So here we go. Obviously, players love and adore their bats. They kiss them. They bring them to church to have them blessed. They snuggle with them in bed. They store them in climate-controlled humidors. They treat them with alcohol and tobacco juice, with motor oil. One minor leaguer one time even rubbed his with jack-in-the-box sauce, and it ended a slump, so then his whole team started doing it. Oh, my God. And, of course, because why not? You're using a cow bone. Why not rub it down with some manure? And I actually saw one report. Yes. Yes delicious, delightful, yummy. One player even took his bat to the doctor and had it injected with cortisone. (laughs) What? I can't answer. I I have no answer for that, Sarah. I have nothing.
0: I have have an unrelated question.
1: That's totally fine. I am out of weird things. I mean, I'm not out of weird things that people do with bats, but that's where I'm going to cut this off.
0: (laughs) Okay. So has anyone written a book or movie where a player becomes obsessed with like, rubbing his bat with the bones of his enemies oh my god that's brilliant other human like maybe yeah oh I my just, god like the I'm bat throwing absor- it out there.
1: like the bat absorbs their powers
0: right or at least he he thinks so because i mean if somebody thinks that jack of the box sauce gave their bat special powers i in no way believe that there has never been a baseball player who is like i need some human bones for my bat um, I bet it's happened before. Wow, that's like
2: yeah. a dark, dark version of Bull Durham that I yes. think I want
1: to see now. <laughs> I think so. They do mention bone rubbing in um, The Natural, which is a movie with Robert Redford. Wow. It's based on a book. I and he's, ta- that. he's talking about his bat named Wonder Boy, and he's describing in exquisite detail all of the things that he did when he made this bat. And he said, and I boned it so it wouldn't chip, which out of context is... <laughs> Something. (laughs) And I
0: boned it. (laughs) Wow. Amazing. Endless jokes. Thank you for all of that. I'm really proud of how I didn't laugh the entire time.
1: There was no giggling. (laughs) None.
0: (laughs) (laughs) We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Sarah's Fact. Okay, we're back. And, uh, Sarah, you have a a wall cleaner with a a fun twist. Indeed. go on. Indeed,
2: I do. So we've got to start by rewinding to the 1920s uh, and just reminding everyone that in the 20s, uh, oil heating had really only just become, like, a viable way to heat your house, which means that most people are using coal furnaces, which is a little bit crazy that it was only in the 20s that people were still using coal inside of their homes. And the thing about coal you might know, is that it produces a lot of soot, and the soot gets everywhere. It just floats around in the air, and then it likes to settle on things, and that's especially a problem, like, if you were not very well off, you probably didn't have, like, if you were rich, you maybe had one coal heater for your whole house, but if you were not so well off, you maybe had, like, a little furnace in every room, so that's a lot of soot, and it creates a pretty decent market for cleaning products to get that soot off of your walls, especially because back then you probably had wallpaper and wallpaper back then was made of paper and you can't really wash paper very easily. (laughs) So it was pretty hard to get all that soot off of your walls. So that brings us to 1933, which is when Kroger grocery stores, I did not realize that Kroger was this old, but Kroger grocery stores asked the Kutal Cutall, I'm not sure how you say it, K U T O L Products Company, which was uh, Cincinnati based. Uh, a products company. A products, you know, the Cutall <laughs> Products stuff. Company. <laughs> yeah. They made soap and other cleaning products. So I'm not sure why it wasn't the Cutall Cleaning Company or something like that. But um, Kroger asked Cutall to make them some kind of product to get the soot off of wallpaper. And that task fell to Cleo and Noah McVicker, who were brothers working at the same company. And what they came up with was basically uh, flour, water, salt, boric acid, and mineral oil. And they mixed these things into kind of a dough, and that seemed to do the job surprisingly well. I'm not really sure how they ended up with, like, what's basically, like, almost dough to make pie dough, but instead of butter, it's boric acid, but it was a good thing for cut-all because they were not doing well at the time. And when they invented this wallpaper cleaner, it actually sold incredibly well and, like, saved the business. So, cut-all made a comeback. And they sold this cleaner, like, prolifically until about the 1950s. And then they ran into kind of a problem, which was that after World War II, oil and gas heaters became way more popular. So, people weren't using coal and they didn't have soot in their houses, which was a great thing for the people, but not great for cut-all. Also, wallpaper stopped being actual paper. They invented vinyl wallpaper. I did not know that a lot of wallpaper today is vinyl, but apparently it is. And it's very easy to wash because it's basically just like a thin sheet of plastic. So you can wash it and rub it and it's not gonna fall apart like regular paper. So now Cuddle has another problem, which is that basically the only product that they sell really well is essentially irrelevant. And by 1955, the company is, like, going under, headed for bankruptcy, and Joseph McVicker, who was Cleo's son, is, like, desperately trying to turn the business around. They basically stop manufacturing the wallpaper cleaner altogether because nobody has any use for it anymore. And then one day, Joe's sister-in-law, Kay Zuffel, I'm not really sure, asks, had he ever thought about using the wallpaper cleaner as a children's toy? Because Kay was a nursery school teacher. And apparently, she'd seen an article in, like, a local newspaper about using this doughy substance as a kind of modeling clay. I couldn't... I searched for this article. I could not find it. I don't know what person suggested a cleaning product as something that children should play
0: with. I mean... It was the better living through chemistry days. Yeah. People were, <laughs> people were very people trusting their kids to play with anything. Yeah. So, I
2: don't know if the person who wrote that original article knew like that the dough was safe or not, but Kay being related to the owners of Cottall, I actually knew that it was like probably fine, and she tried it out with her little students and they freaking loved it. So, she convinced Joe to come to her classroom and see how much all these kids enjoyed playing with it, even though it was just like a white doughy ball of mush. And since he had literally nothing better to do with his company, he was like, well, we're going to pivot to just making this dough, but we're going to take out the boric acid, which is the cleansing agent. So it's basically now just water, flour and salt, very safe for children to be playing with. And then in 1956, he created the Rainbow Crafts Company as a subsidiary of cut-all products, and they started making Play-Doh. Wow. It's, dough. it's Play-Doh. Hard to guess, I know, a dough-like substance. Joe wanted to call it
1: Rainbow Modeling Compound, which <laughs> really speaks to... <laughs> what a dork. <laughs> yeah. I Man, that think- just that converts right into a snappy TV jingle. Just
2: <laughs> Yeah, I think the McVickers were a very literal people... The Cut All Products Company modeling compound. Uh, But fortunately, Kay and her husband knew better and came up with the name Play Doh, which was a lot more kid friendly. So it started coming out in the 1950s. It was originally available in just uh, like red, yellow, and blue, and like really only being marketed to kids in the greater Cincinnati area because it was like a pretty small company. And then Joe was able to convince. Bob Keishin I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly either But you might know him as Captain Kangaroo I don't know him as Captain Kangaroo Because oh. that was before my time But um, <laughs> I'm
0: vaguely familiar with him as Captain Kangaroo
2: Yeah, I knew of Captain Kangaroo But if I'm being honest I thought he was a kangaroo For sure <laughs> um, <laughs> Which makes sense, you know Captain Crunch, Captain Kangaroo They felt related somehow In my head Anyway, Captain Kangaroo was a kid's show that ran on CBS from 1955 to 1984, if you don't know that, like I did not. But he convinced Captain Kangaroo to play with Play-Doh on his TV show, and now they had this massive national audience, and all of a sudden, Rainbow Crafts has, like, like, they could barely keep up with the demand for their Play-Doh. And, like, the rest is history. In the 60s, they invented the Fun Factory, where you could, like, extrude... Like little spaghetti shapes and stuff like that. And they
0: ruined carpets everywhere. They
2: did. They did. And um Play Doh became like basically ubiquitous. They got bought by General Mills in nineteen seventy two and then Hasbro bought them in nineteen ninety one. And they still make it today and it's like almost exactly the same formulation. It's pretty much just flour, water, and salt. And it's uh it's in the National Toy Hall of Fame, which I didn't know was a thing. But it got inducted in nineteen ninety eight. And that's the story of Plato.
0: Well, we've all learned a lot. What was the weirdest thing we learned this week? I mean, all the boning stuff for me <laughs> was... The boning? I learned so much about boning.
2: The boning was fun for sure, but I feel like (laughs) I think for me it was it was had to be one of the sports because like I already knew that baseball players
0: were ridiculous.
2: (laughs) And so I've opened a whole new
0: world for you of underwater ice hockey and toe wrestling. I
2: mean the things people will come up with and just decide (laughs) like this is going to be a game now. This stupid thing that we just came up with right now, this is a game forever.
0: Yeah, like Yeah, and all you have to do is keep insisting that it's fun and people should gather and do it and before you know it you have a wikipedia page about how your stupid thing is a sport. That's my understanding of toe wrestling. Yeah. <laughs> like
1: no, like shin kicking. Like so my vote is again for like the weird sports that Rachel didn't make up which includes the aggregate of the cheese rolling and all of the other true facts. I guess this is like the podcast voting equivalent of a subtweet. <laughs> but yeah there's just some utterly bizarre stuff in there that cannot go unacknowledged
0: yeah i agree well i'm i'm glad you enjoyed it and uh weirdos we will be back very soon with season four for you in the meantime send us your voice memos talk to us on facebook and twitter and stay safe happy well and weird Thanks for listening, weirdos. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other weirdos find the show. For more information on the stories you heard in this episode, come find us at popscye.com slash weird. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at Popseye.threadless.com. The show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Fultman, with editing and audio engineering by Jess Bodie. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos.